Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Uh, if you now open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, 1 through 15 is our text. We are in a sermon series called, What is Christianity? This is kind of a new start for us as a church in this new sanctuary. And so we thought it's a good idea just to kind of go back to the basics and review what is Christianity? What is the faith all about? And what we're doing is kind of going through this in the order that events are presented to us in the Bible. So we started last week with creation, as Adam mentioned a while ago, and we learned last week that God is the creator of all things, and that as we look at the universe and the entire created order, what the Bible tells us is that this is a demonstration, a proof of God's existence. The glory of the created order proves to us that there is a God. We also learn that God has created things to be good. His created order is good. Physical matter is good. The created order, physical bodies are good. God has started things by making a universe that he pronounces to be good. And then we also learn that you and me, as creatures made in God's image, are the pinnacle of God's creation. We are his crowning achievement as individuals made in his image. So the Bible begins with this doctrine of creation and gives us this very promising, very positive, very exciting start to things. But something went wrong. Something went dreadfully wrong. Something went catastrophically wrong. And that's the second stage of the Bible's presentation of history. This second stage is called the fall. And that's what we're talking about here this morning. The fall is the explanation of how things went sour, how this world got so messed up. It's an explanation of the fundamental problem with men, women, and children. This is what the Bible says. We have fallen. Have you ever been in a situation where you have noticed certain behaviors, attitudes in your life, certain things you've said, certain things you've done, and as you've reflected on that, you've asked yourself a question. What's wrong with me? Have you ever asked that question about yourself? I I did this sin... And I was so ashamed of this, and I promised my friends and my wife and my kids and myself that I would never do it again, and only a few days passed, and there I was doing the exact same thing. What's wrong with me? Have you ever heard words come out of your mouth, either the content of certain words or at least the tone of voice? You just hear something coming out of you, and it almost kind of startles you? You surprise yourself at what you just said or the way you just said it? Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me. Curt tones. 
angry attitudes coming out of my mouth, coming out of my heart. And I think to myself, what's wrong with me? If you haven't asked that question about others, or excuse me, about yourself, you've probably asked that question about others. What's wrong with my roommates? What's wrong with him? What is wrong with my wife? What's wrong with my husband? What's wrong with my boss? Certainly when you look at the news and you see the way things are going in our world, you've asked this question, what's wrong with the world? What is wrong with this situation? This is something I think we can all identify with. It's something that um, a guy named Francis Spufford has written well about in his book, Unapologetic. He says, describes this, this thing I'm talking about. He says, you find that you aren't what you thought you were, but something much more multiple and mysterious and self-subverting. And this discovery doesn't propel you to a new understanding of things. It propels you into a state where you don't understand anything at all. I just don't get what's happening in my life, why I'm doing this, why these people are doing this to me. And you're lost. One of my favorite movies, <clears throat> Hannah and Her Sisters, Woody Allen, it's back in the 80s, I know, released before a lot of you were even born, but um, in this movie, Michael Caine, he's the one pictured on the screen, engages in an extra marital affair, and here's a picture of Michael Caine reflecting on what he's done, <clears throat> and there's a narration, he's just sitting, he's thinking, but they tell you what he's thinking, and, and he says to himself, for all of my education and for all of my knowledge, I still can't fathom my own heart. That's Michael Caine saying, what's wrong with me? The Bible offers an explanation. Okay? The Bible doesn't tell us everything we might like to know about what's wrong with us. It doesn't answer all the questions. It doesn't tell us necessarily why things unfolded the way that they did. It doesn't give explanation for all the details, like how is it that there's a talking serpent here? I mean, the Bible doesn't explain, these, explain all these things, but the Bible does tell us what happened. And that's what we're going to read right now. The explanation of how things went sour. Friends, let me tell you, this is your story. This is your story, and my story too. This is our story in Genesis 3. So let's rise for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read verses 1 through 15. <coughs> Excuse me. Genesis 3, 1 through 15. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. 
and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God, would you please open our eyes to understand what you're revealing to us in your word. Help us to understand. Give us faith to receive this and send us, Lord, away. Thankful to you for your grace and eager to submit all of our lives to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, we're going to look at this question of the fall from, from three points of view. So the, the first thing we're going to consider is the reality of the fall, because there are some of you who, after reading this, might be thinking, yeah, okay, I know this story, I've heard it before, but everybody knows it's a myth. Everybody knows this is just a, it's just a fable, it's just a story, it's, maybe it's an allegory. Uh, certainly we all know that naturalistic Darwinian evolutionary theories have proven that God didn't just create individuals at some particular point in time, but that we've been evolving for millions and millions of years. So this account just doesn't seem to be consistent with what some of us have been taught about the way things have happened. So did this really happen? That's the question. Did this really happen? And the answer that I'm going to give to you today is that yes, it did. This really happened. That this is an account of two people who actually lived on this earth named Adam and Eve. And I'm going to give you reasons for that. Here's why I think this really happened. We believe here that the Bible is the Word of God. So we believe that what the Bible teaches is true. Now, there are different ways to interpret the Bible depending on different genres of literature. So sometimes that can complicate things a little bit. But one of the ways we can find out if this really happened is to look to see what the rest of the Bible says about this event. Does the rest of the Bible say this happened? And I think the answer is yes. So there, there's three reasons why I think this happened. One's the biblical reason. Particularly when we look at the words of Jesus, there's a story in Matthew chapter 19 where Jesus is being asked a question from some Pharisees about divorce and remarriage, and Jesus responds by saying this. He answers these Pharisees and he says, have you not read this passage that we just read? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? 
actually, I guess he'd be referring to Genesis 2, not necessarily Genesis 3. <clears throat> but here's Jesus speaking, referring to the creation account of God making them male and female, Adam and Eve. Jesus apparently believes that this really happened, that Adam and Eve were real people. There's another example, Luke chapter 3. In Luke 3, we have the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And we have a list of a number of individuals, people like David and Abraham and Noah, people that the Bible presents to us as real historical individuals. And the list goes on and on and on. I have here just the end of the list, the son of so-and-so, the son of this person, the son of that person, the son of Abraham, the son of Noah. And then it ends by saying this, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, who was the son of God created directly by God. There's no indication in this list that somehow the writer is moving from Moses to Adam as if Moses really existed and Adam didn't. Adam is listed in a long list of people who are considered to be real individuals who lived on this earth. There's another example. Here's Paul, 1 Timothy chapter 2. He's talking about the roles of men and women in the church, and he says, Adam was formed first, then Eve. So Paul is referring to something that happened. There's no indication, no hint, no caveat, no exception, no clarifying detail that this was some kind of uh, a myth or a fable. Paul seems to believe this really happened. Luke seems to believe this really happened. Jesus seems to believe this really happened. So for biblical reasons, I think we believe that this is a real event. Okay, there's a theological reason as well why this really happened. And that's based on the passage that Josh read to us when we went into our confession and assurance from Romans chapter 5. And I'm going to quote another verse here from Romans 5, where Paul says, For as by the one man's disobedience, referring to Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, referring to Jesus, the many will be made righteous. So think here about Paul's logic. He is clearly drawing, isn't he, a very tight connection between Adam and Jesus. And we certainly know that Paul believed Jesus to be a real person. And yet here he is talking about them both in the same sentence, in the same way. Now, they did different things, represented uh, to us different realities, but there's no indication here that Paul thinks Jesus was real and Adam wasn't. And in fact, if we want to say that Adam is a myth, we have some disturbing implications that might come from that. Because if Adam was a myth, maybe Jesus was too. Why, why would Paul be making this big case about there being a historical solution to our problem in Jesus if the problem at the beginning was mythical? Why would we need a historical solution to a mythical problem? I think the only way to properly read this is to agree that what Paul is saying here is that there was a real man who caused our problem, just as there was a real man who fixed our problem. The real man, Adam, the real man, Jesus. For theological reasons, I think we've got to hold on to the belief that the fall really happened. One last 
reason why I think this really happened, it's what I'm calling the experiential reason. That is something that we just know deep down in our guts. Don't you all realize, as I said in the introduction and as you look at everything, don't you realize that instinctively that things are not the way they're supposed to be? Wouldn't, wouldn't you agree with that? I, mean, I don't know what you believe. I don't know if you believe in God. I don't know if you're a Christian. I don't know. But I think probably all of us would agree that things are not the way they're supposed to be in your personal life, in your family life, in your professional life. Things have gone awry, haven't they? I mean, is it, you know, when an army of people run across a country and cut people's heads off and slice people in half, these reports that we're hearing about what's going on in Iraq, is that the way things are supposed to be? All of us know at some instinctive level that things are out of order, and I think that implies that things once were in order. The only way we can say that things are not the way they're supposed to be is to imply that things were once the way they were supposed to be. That's how we know it's not the way it's supposed to be. It's changed. It's different. When we say things are out of order, implied in that is that there was a time when things were in order. Things were in perfect order at one time. It's like, how do you know what a crooked stick is unless you have a straight stick? The whole concept of crooked makes no sense whatsoever unless it's compared to a straight standard. That's how we know what it is to be sick. We only know sickness in relation to health. We only know crooked in relation to straight. And we only know that things aren't the way they're supposed to be in relation to the fact that there was a time when things were the way they were supposed to be. It's like we as a human race have this collective memory of Eden. There's echoes of Eden in all of our hearts and minds, as we look to the world and evaluate ourselves and our families, we realize things are broken up. So in our own experience, I think we realize something's gone, something's gone wrong. And to say that something's gone wrong implies that there was a time when things were just right before a fall. And I think this gives us hope, actually, because if, if there was a time when things were perfect and in order, it gives us hope that there can be another time when things are perfect and in order. That's a possibility. It's a realistic possibility. It happened once. It was that way once in this world, and it's going to be that way again. And that's what we'll talk about when we get to glory, the third part, um, or excuse me, the fourth part of this sermon series. So that, that's the reality of the fall. You know, in the end, friends, I mean, let me just be honest. When you say you believe in Adam and Eve and you say that a snake was talking to him, people are going to laugh at you. I mean, it's not like this is some kind of a presentation of the way things have occurred that is going to earn you a lot of respect in the world. But, you know, maybe that's just the cross that we're called to carry as Christians. We believe in the Scriptures. We believe what they say. I'm not saying that you don't come up with a reasonable and rational explanation of what's going on here. But friends, we don't believe the Bible only to the degree that the world agrees with us. We believe what the Scripture says, even though it might bring some scorn from the world. And this might be a situation where we have to be ready to do that, to believe, to believe in the reality of the fall. 
Okay, secondly, let's consider the root of the fall. What is at the root here of what happened? We'll get into the text now, finally. What is the root of what happened? Um, You know, we look at the culture, the culture has all sorts of different words to define what went wrong, why things aren't the way they're supposed to be. Um, Culture will use words like dysfunction, uh, disease, addiction. You know, we have all these different words to describe our problem, but very seldom will people say the problem is sin. I mean, that's just not a very popular word, is it? in our culture. There's a guy named Carl Menninger. Maybe some of you have heard of him. He was a very famous psychologist, uh, died in 1990. Um, and uh, I don't know if he was a Christian or, or not. I'm, I'm not sure that he was, but he certainly wasn't speaking necessarily from a Christian point of view. But he wrote this book. It was called Whatever Became of Sin. And you can tell by the horrible cover on that book that it definitely came from several decades ago. This was written in like 1973. So uh, this is what a lot of people are saying today, but people have been saying this for a long time. Whatever became of sin, here's what Manager writes in his book. He says, sin was a word once in everyone's mind, but now rarely if ever heard. Does that mean that no sin is involved in any Uh, Involved in all our troubles, sin with an I in the middle? Where indeed did sin go? What became of it? In this whole book, this psychologist is giving this explanation that one of the problems that we face is that we've lost the notion of sin. Well, the root of the fall, what the Bible tells us here, is the problem of sin. The fall is the occasion for sin entering in the picture. Now, I know there's lots of questions, and in leadership training we talk a lot about this. Where does sin actually begin? How did Adam and Eve as perfect individuals have hearts that were inclined towards sin? You know, those are hard things. I don't know. I don't know the answer to those questions. And and the Bible doesn't tell us. But again, it tells us what happened, and it gives us this very perceptive and insightful analysis of what sin's like and and how it works in our hearts. As I go through this, you're going to see yourself in this. That's one of the reasons why I believe in the Bible. The Bible just seems to, it just seems to know me. It knows the way my heart works. And that's why I believe it's the truth. And so here's what we see. Uh, first of all, just some, some background. If you want to look back to verses 16 and 17, we have to look at this chapter 2, 16 and 17. We have to know what God said in order to understand chapter 3. So chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, the Lord God commands Adam, the man, and he says, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So that's the clear command given by God to Adam. Before Adam had fallen in the perfect state of affairs, Adam was upright, and righteous, and God gives him this command. And then we see at the beginning of chapter 3 that this serpent, representing Satan, comes on the scene. He's crafty, more crafty than any other beast of the field, and he enters into this attempt to deceive Eve. And he employs this strategy. Now now watch how this strategy goes. Here's the first thing 
that, uh, that the serpent does, that Satan through the serpent does. The first thing he does is question God's word. Questions what God says. Do you see that? In verse 1, he says to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Is that actually what he said? Notice what the serpent is not doing here. You know, he could have come on really strong at this time. He could have said, Eve, God doesn't exist. You can't even see him. He could have said, Eve, just come follow me. I'll provide you all that you want and all that you, you need. I'll be your master. Follow me. I mean, he could have come right out and denied God and said, God's a liar. You shouldn't listen to him. That's what the serpent could have done. Isn't it just so crafty of him to not begin so strongly, but to start in a subtle way and just to question God's word? Is, is, that, is that what he said? Are you sure, Eve? And here is where things are starting to go awry for Eve. She's starting to question God's word. She's starting to look to God's word with suspicion. She's starting to wonder if Maybe it doesn't really say what it seems to so obviously say. Can I really trust it? Maybe there's another way to kind of turn this around so that it says what I'd really like it to say. This is what Satan wants to get Eve to do, and it's, it's what he wants you to do too. He wants you to look at the Bible with suspicion. What about all the contradictions? What about science? What, what about the fact that I don't like what it says right there? And we're suspicious of it. That's the beginning of the end, right there. And that's what the serpent's doing. This is his strategy. Question God's word. But then he moves to the next stage. He, he does. Now, now he turns it up a little bit. He challenges God's word. So in verse 2 and 3, the woman responds to the serpent, his question, did God really say you shouldn't eat of any tree? And the woman responds and says, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Now, did, did God say that she shouldn't touch it? Did God tell Adam that he shouldn't touch the tree? I mean, I suppose it's implied that you can't, if you're not, can't eat from it, you shouldn't touch it, I suppose. But it's just interesting to me that Eve kind of wants to add something here. You know, it's like now she's starting to think, wait, maybe God's more restrictive than I really thought that he was. And that's another way things start going bad. It's not just when we do what the Bible commands us not to do. It's when we start adding commands that the Bible doesn't command us to do. That's a problem too. It's another way to distort and corrupt the Word of God. It seems like Eve is beginning to do this here in verse 3. But then in verse 4, the serpent says to the woman, and here's the flat-out challenge, you will not surely die. <laughs> I mean, didn't God just say in verse 17 of chapter 2 that if you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die? Blatant contradiction of the Word of God. And so now the serpent is leading Eve down this path. Now that you've begun to question it, why don't you just take the next step and just defy it and just come up with your own idea of what's right and wrong? Yeah, the Bible, it seems to talk about judgment quite a bit, doesn't it? 
mean, the Bible talks a lot about hell, and the Bible says there's, you, you're going to reap what you sow, and the prophets in the Old Testament are constantly going after Israel, saying God's going to exile you, God's going to judge you. If you continue to live disobediently to Him, and yet people read the Bible and they say, oh, there's no hell, there's no judgment, God's all love, God's no, no wrath, no anger, God would never be angry at you for anything that you do. What, what's at root here with the serpent strategy of denying God's word is more specifically denying God's judgment. God won't judge you. You can do whatever you want. You can make up your own ideas of right and wrong. What he's really trying to do is get Eve to be not just a lawbreaker, but a lawmaker. He wants Eve to make up her own law. And man, do we see that prevalent in our culture? Yes. That's the prevailing view, that morality is up to you to decide. So there's a challenge to God's Word. And then lastly, the serpent strategy is to deny God's goodness. And we see that in verse 5. The serpent goes on. After saying, you shall not surely die, God knows... He says to Eve that when you eat of it, the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So here's what the serpent's doing now. He's saying, you know what, Eve, not only is it good to question God's word and even challenge it, but it's actually good to disobey God's word. It's actually good to do what it doesn't say because God doesn't really want what's good for you that God is trying to hold you down. God's trying to make your life hard. God wants you to be miserable. And if you only throw off the restraints of His Word, oh, think of the wonderful things that will happen. Your eyes will be opened and you'll know good and evil. You're going to be like God if you just disobey Him. There's an advantage to your sin. That's what the serpent is doing. And the only way this works is if he gets Eve to think that God is not actually good, that he doesn't have good in mind for me. But but isn't that just ludicrous? When you go back to verse 16 again, and note what God says to Adam, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. Think of all the trees there must have been. They're beautiful, fruit-filled tasty trees everywhere. And God is saying, I want you to enjoy all of these things. I've made them for you. Every single one of them, except this one right here. That's the only thing I'm asking. Don't touch that one. Here's God showing his goodness in all that he's providing to Adam and Eve. And what the serpent does is say, no, God's not good. And the reason he's not good is because there's something he's keeping from you. And that's the root of sin very often for us, isn't it? When we always look to somebody else's fruit, when we have this desire to find and get for ourselves what is off limits to us. That's one of the roots of sin that I think every one of us can identify with. It's always somebody else's house that we want, somebody else's car that we want, somebody else's job that we want, somebody else's physical appearance that we want, somebody else's husband that we want, somebody else's wife that we want, somebody else's church that we want. We're always wanting what's off limits to us because we think what God has already done for us is not good. That, that's the root 
of sin. That's what the serpent here is doing. That's what he's stirring up in Eve. And we could actually talk a lot more about the implications of this. It actually gets worse. But I just hope you notice that the very root of the fall here and the very nature of sin has to do with our regard to, to God's Word, questioning it, rebelling against it, and questioning God's goodness. So what's wrong with us? Friends, sin. Sin is what's wrong with us. Sin is what's wrong with us. We don't want in our heart of hearts to obey God's Word. We don't want to live by God's Word. We don't want to really enjoy and rejoice in all that God has given us. And friends, I I just want to make this very clear. I'm talking to you as the Church of Jesus Christ's congregation so that it can be clear that we understand that this is what we believe about us as a church, as God's people. We come here every Sunday not so that we can pat ourselves on the back as if we're the good people and all the people out in the world are the bad people. We don't come. The church is not the gathering up of all the good people in the world. That's that's not the church. That's why, as Josh was saying, we confess sins here every single Sunday. Some of you might think, why do they do this? Are they trying to brainwash us here? Is this like groupthink? We're just going to talk about how sinful we are so that eventually we'll believe it? I mean, are we trying to beat ourselves up? I mean, why do we do that? The reason we do that is because we really believe that sin is really the problem that all of us have. And we do that to acknowledge that we as a church acknowledge that as Christians, we are still part of the problem. We are still sinners. We need grace. We are broken. We are fallen. We are messed up. The church is full of broken, messed up people. We are not the people who have it all together while the rest of the world is somehow beneath us. We come to be honest about what the Scriptures are teaching, about the condition of our hearts, and we need to be reacquainted with this every week as we come and confess sin. So one last thing. We've got to consider the result, the result of the fall, the result of the fall. Here's what happened. Adam also ate. Do you see that in verse 6? So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, the Bible tells us that Eve was deceived. She was deceived by the serpent. We don't, we're not told that Adam was deceived. The conclusion I draw from that is that when Adam ate, he ate out of just pure rebellion. He knew what was going on, and he just did it anyway. And the result of that, because Adam, the Bible tells us, is the father of the human race, our representative, that his disobedience plunged us into our own sinful disobedience. Remember again, I'll show it to you again, Romans 5. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That's us. We're made sinners because Adam stood in our place as the father of the human race, and his sin has gotten inside of us. And now it's in our DNA. It has polluted the waters of the human race so that all of us have this under our skin 
It's right in here now. And we try to do the best we can to kind of leave it alone and, and overcome it and by our own efforts to try to get on top of it. But like Martin Luther said, it's like a man shaving his beard. He shaves his beard and he gets himself all tidied up and the next day it just grows back. He can't, he can't stop it. It just keeps growing. That's the way sin is because it's in us and we can't hold it down. And so the result of that, of Adam's sin for us, are a few things. One, alienation from, from God. Verse 8, God comes walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and then we find that the man and his wife have hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. They're hiding from God. Here's one of the results of the fall. We don't always just deny His existence, but we hide from Him. We run from Him. We're afraid of Him. We feel like we can't connect to Him. We don't have relationship with Him. Alienation from God. Secondly, alienation from others we see. Verse 7, Adam and Eve, their eyes are opened, and suddenly they know they're naked, and so they sew fig leaves together and make loincloths. They're, they're experiencing shame. They want to cover themselves. They're embarrassed about themselves now. And there's not only shame, but there's also blame Verse 12, when God comes, ask the man, did you eat? And the man says, it was the woman you gave to be with me. It was her fault. And in fact, there's an implication there. It's actually God's fault because she's the woman you gave me, God. It's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. But here's alienation from others. Here's how it comes. We pull away from people in our shame, and we attack people in our blame. And then lastly, we see there's alienation from creation. And you have to go forward to verse 17 here. I didn't read this, but here God is pronouncing the curse. And look at the end. He says to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth from you. And remember, friends, last week we talked about created order is good, and God made it upright and good. When the fall happened, it wasn't just our souls, it wasn't just our spiritual lives that got damaged, it was the whole created order, the whole cosmos, the whole universe fell with Adam. That's what Paul says, Romans 8, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. I think that's referring to Adam. Creation was subjected to futility. Our work becomes drudgery. We can't stand going to work. Sexual relationships become perverted and defiled. Art becomes a vehicle for blasphemy. Animals are afraid of us and fleeing from us. Tornadoes and tsunamis wreak destruction. And in the most profound way, we all find that death is knocking at our door. And that's the most serious result of the fall. We all die, spiritually and physically. <laughs> now, I know maybe some of you are thinking, man, this is a real downer. I mean, this is a bleak picture, isn't it? <laughs> but friends, this is the picture that the Bible gives us, and I want to suggest that you cannot accept fully and completely the cure that God has provided unless you fully and completely accept the diagnosis 
And this is the diagnosis. We are fallen. Sin is in our hearts. And we need a Savior really badly. We need a Savior. Do you know that? Do you understand your need for a Savior? You have to have somebody come rescue you. You can't do it yourself. You're too fallen. Sin is rooted too deep in your heart. You can't save yourself. And that's why it's such wonderful news that God in His mercy has laid out a plan. Verse 15, He makes this promise. He says that a descendant one day is going to come from Eve, and that descendant is going to bruise the head of the serpent. That descendant is going to come. He's going to destroy Satan. He's going to bring him down. And we find that that's exactly what happened in the person of Jesus Christ, who the Bible calls the second Adam. Look what it says. Last passage here, 1 Corinthians 15. As by a man came death, Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. God has had mercy, and He has provided a solution. He set up Adam as our representative, and in His grace, He sent Jesus to stand in a very similar place. You do not have to be in Adam. By placing faith in Jesus, you can know you're in Him. So that just as Adam's sin infected you, now you can have the assurance that Jesus' righteousness belongs fully and completely to you by faith and faith alone. That's the solution. We'll talk about that more when we get to redemption. But friends, I just want to encourage you to look carefully at yourself and to look carefully at this text and come to grips with the real problem, what's really wrong with you. It's, It's not the people in your life. It's not the fact you don't have enough money. It's not the fact that you don't live in the right city. Those things can be difficult, but your fundamental problem is sin, and your most fundamental problem has been decisively dealt with by Jesus. He's dealt with it completely. So Carl Menninger said this, the psychologist I mentioned a moment ago. He said about patients in the mental hospitals that he worked in, he said, if If these patients could just know that their sins were forgiven, 75% of them would walk out of these hospitals the next day. (laughs) You can walk out of here today, friends, knowing that your sins are forgiven by turning to Jesus, the Lamb who laid down His life to lift us from the fall. And that's what we're going to sing about now. But let's pray. Lord God, this is, um, um, this is hard to receive, but we thank you, Lord, that you're honest with us and that you have been clear about what our problem is. And we thank you that you have given to us a Savior who has reversed the effects of the fall and is coming again to make all things right. We praise you for him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.